Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from Latrobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Daniel Ogden, professor in classics and ancient history at the University of Exeter. This is episode CLXXI, Roman Magic. Magic was an essential part of the Roman world. You could use it in love, revenge, profit, life, and death. All levels of Roman society made use of it, and it was an integral part of the understanding of both religion and medicine. Here's Daniel Ogden. Various authorities, um, modern authorities, will um, come out with definitions of magic. They're all really a version of Fraser's definition, you know, the Golden Bough Fraser, that in religion one has a, a supplicative attitude towards the gods, you know, one asks the gods for things nicely, and in magic you, you order the gods to do things. Every work of scholarship that comes out feels obliged in its, in its preface to produce some sort of definition of that sort, you know, some working definition. And I think we can be pretty sure that the Romans wouldn't recognise any of these definitions. I'm into folklore and folktale in a big way, and I strongly believe that it's through folklore and folktale that one understands phenomena like magic in an ancient society. You're not told a definition of magic when you're a baby. You hear the stories. And, you know, frankly, I mean, most children today in the modern world, in, in Australia or in Britain, that's how they know what magic is, isn't it? Because they, they see the stories, they read the stories. That's really how ancient people came to magic through stories. And, of course, we have some brilliant examples of stories of witches, less so male sorcerers, but um, some wonderful lurid stories about witches in the ancient Roman world. That's how most people understood magic, not in terms of a definition, but they knew it through the stories. It's also how we know religion, though. We know religion through stories. We learn religion through stories. And I, I guess that a lot of magic from not just the Roman world, but the ancient world in particular, is tied up in religion. So there would be a very fine line between those two things. Is, is that assumption accurate? Well, yes, there is always a problematic line between magic and religion. And if we're going to spend a little time with ancient intellectuals, then, I mean, the key person here in, on the Roman side is going to be Pliny, the elder, who I think I might be saying he's the only person from the Greco-Roman world, the whole of the Greco-Roman world, actually to attempt a definition of magic, or at least a, a sort of definition. And he says that magic actually started in medicine, and then people stuck a bit of religion into it, and then a bit of astrology. Now, you might find that surprising. And so for Pliny, as he would say, that explains what magic is. And I suppose that partly coincides with the way he talked about magic elsewhere. Pliny is a major source, actually, for Roman magic. And he's forever going on about these people he calls the mages, you know, the magi. Mm. His natural history is full of this stuff. The book that I would say is healing. Mm. All the literary evidence we have is elite evidence you sort of get the impression that probably folk magic, for the most part, concentrated on healing too. Uh, we're talking probably about little old women, you know, not necessarily people you call witches, but little old women, wise women perhaps, who would visit a neighbour's house in order to apply this or that remedy. I see. So if you if you need a remedy of some sort, you might go down to the local temple and pay the old lady who sits outside to give you something. I mean, that's an obvious thing to suggest. Yes, probably in certain cases at certain times, precisely that. 
the marketplace, mm. and again, it would depend precisely on the sort of magic you're peddling. If it's magic of a negative kind, then you're going to be secretive about your use of it. I guess people who are offering curse tablets are not going to set up a stall in the marketplace. They're going to operate through back channels, aren't they? Mm. So a lot of what I understand ancient magic to be, though, is we interpret it from our current understanding of science and medicine mm. and those sort of things. But the ancients would describe it as as magic. So Pliny, for example, I've, I've got a, a quote here where he's talking about ingesting a Persian plant is magic because it caused the person to be tormented by guilty memories until they confess. That just sounds like Pliny found a, a plant that made him a bit high. <laughs> yeah. And that's our understanding of it. But he attributes that sort of experience to magic. Yeah, well, I mean, what we would consider to be medicine, I mean, maybe wrong medicine, but nonetheless medicine and magic, it's all mixed up together in an inextricable concatenation. I mean, a case in point really is um, his treatment of the hyena. The hyena is often regarded as a magical creature, which can change sex and all sorts of things like that. He has this description of its magical properties. I can't remember the exact number, probably 50 or 70 different body parts he distinguishes and talks about their magical applications. Uh, and almost all the applications are, again, healing ones. So we're back in the sort of medicine area there. And with each body part, there's a mode of application. It's either ingested, eaten, or you make a smoke of it, so you fumigate with it, or you apply it to the body as a sort of salve, or you wear it as an amulet. For us, you may think, well, okay, if you're ingesting it, possibly if you're smoking it, there might be some sort of medical, physical, scientific process going on there that we can relate to, whether rightly understood or not. But wearing it as an amulet, that is just magic. But there's no distinction really for Pliny. It's all the same for him. On the question of science, beside the temptation to contrast magic with religion, there's the temptation to contrast magic with science. And that can be misleading in some ways because of all ancient activities, magic of a certain kind was, in a sense, the most scientific. <laughs> because if you look at the Greek magical papyri, now these are it's a big collection of documents, but the, the interesting part of this collection is a series of about 20 recipe books, some of them very long, with all sorts of collections of magical recipes in. And some of them very protracted, very detailed, you get a sense just from looking at these detailed recipes that they've been built up piecemeal, gradually, over a long time. So you've got your basic recipe and then the sorcerer has come along and he's tried something a bit different, he's added this, he's subtracted that. Clearly there's a process of trial and error behind the development of this recipe. What is it that actually works? What do you have to do to make it work? Sometimes these recipes will actually say at the end, this recipe has been tested. <laughs> you know, that is scientific method, you know, the experimentation there, the, an attempt to approach step by step towards the truth through experimentation. So paradoxically, you know, there's an awful lot of science in ancient magic. How much of Roman magic and ancient magic was associated with foreignness and the other? Because when I was going through uh, the different examples that you've got in your book of all these instances of magic, it was invariably with somebody from the East, or yeah. you've got the association with Druids. One of the few solid things you get about uh, the Celts before yeah. Caesar goes over and uh, and introduces himself. So so how much of that is a sense of otherness for yes. the Romans? Magic is associated with foreign races, and especially, I mean, not just Eastern races, but especially Eastern races. But that goes back a long way. I mean, 
uh, in terms of should I say learned knowledge of magic that comes to the Romans through the Greeks. But for the Greeks themselves, already magic is something you associate with Orientals. I mean, just to take the word magic itself, magos, mage, magia, magic, that seems mm. to have appeared in Greece in around 500 BC. And that word was borrowed from the Persians, the derivative of magush. It's not entirely clear, but a predominant theory is for the Persians, a magush was the priest of the Median religion. We tend to say Persians and Medes and sort of use Median to mean Persian, as the Greeks themselves did, but Persians and Medes were actually two different races and the Persians conquered the Medes, or, or at least then there was an Anschluss with the Medes at an early point. So for the Persians already, the Magush is somebody who's a bit foreign and a bit weird. And that meaning is brought over into Greece, where it's associated with Persians indiscriminately. Herodotus himself still perhaps associates it more particularly with the Medes. And then you get that process again as you move to Rome. So the mages are always, you know, one step over there, one step more weird. Mm. Do you end up with magic specialities depending on where the practitioner is from, maybe? So you might go and see a Celt if you want a, a herbal remedy of some sort. I don't know. I'm generalizing here, of course, but yeah. Yes, there are certain specializations. Pretty much all magical races are, in the end, credited with the, the full range of stuff. But the Chaldeans were historically a group of tribes that lived near Babylon. But as far as the Greeks and the Romans are concerned, they're a sort of magical caste, as it were. And they're particularly associated with prediction and divination. So you could say there's a specialisation there. As far as herbal magic is concerned, that is very strongly associated with witches, with female practitioners. Female practitioners of all sorts, but especially Thessalians. So again, from the, from the, the Greek district of Thessaly. The Thessalian mm. witch. In fact, the female version of the adjective Thessalian just in itself effectively means witch. As I say, I think pretty much all magical races or practitioners were regarded as pretty much capable of the whole lot. Mm. So can you take me through some of the common examples of magic that you'd get around Roman culture? So I know, for example, that curse tablets are a thing, but I don't know how common they would be to everyday Romans. We find curse tablets in every province of the Roman Empire. Mm. Again, they started in the Greek world. The earliest ones we know of come from Sicily, again, around 500 BC. So that's just a coincidence, I think. Probably there were verbal curses that preceded them. Interestingly, the first curses we have are written to support people in lawsuits, which is surprising, really. I mean, you might think that lawsuits belong to sort of a higher level of civilization somehow. You know, you might think that lawyers, they might be mean people, but at least they're rational people. <laughs> Why curse tablets emerging in that context? Well, of course, lawsuits are contexts of high emotion and high stakes, aren't they? So, I mean, that gives you a reason. But I think actually the reason is that the lawyers, the people representing people in court, they were the literate people. They were the people that could write. And therefore, mm. I think probably there was a widespread culture of cursing, you know, amongst all people. But the first people to convert that into a written culture were the people that wrote, i.e. the lawyers. So what was the thinking about it? How did they work practically and what was the content of them? Well, there's a wide range of variation. So typically you'd write your curse on a piece of lead, lead being sort of like the scrap paper of the ancient world, very malleable, and it was freely available and you could just get a bit of lead, stamp it flat or melt it flat very easily to make a writing service. You'd write your curse these are binding curses, so very often you'd be saying, I bind, and you'd be binding a particular part or a particular aspect of a person. 
So again, in a legal context, you'd be binding the tongue of the opposite legal team. In an erotic situation, you'd be binding the desirability of a rival lover. So the curse tablets do sort of fall into sort of thematic categories. So sport and choral competitions and things like that. Augustine talks about uh, being approached by a, a sorcerer who offers to make him a curse as he's about to enter a poetry competition. You want the curse to bind all the other poets, you know, to restrain their poetic ability. Business, again, another sort of competitive context, they often get uh, curse-related business. And then, of course, love. The binding curse is designed to bind, to restrain, as it were, to keep something holding back. So probably when they first came into the erotic sphere, and of course there's no other sphere more important to people, they were used, as I say, just to restrain rival lovers. You know, I mean, well, for example, there is actually a curse from Macedon, actually, a fourth-century curse from Macedon, in which a lady clearly has the hots for a certain man. But again, because of the idiom of the curse is to bind, as it were, competing people, she has to bind the desirability of this other woman who, who she suspects he has his eye on. But then she binds also the desirability of all other women in the world, except herself, you see, so she's the only one left. Kind of rather an artificial way of thinking about, about, about love. And erotic curses did mutate and they changed the way the binding worked. So then they would later on target the, the love object. So a man would say, bind this woman so that she can't eat or drink or have sex until she comes to me. So it's a sort of conditional binding, you know, a sort of torturing binding. And then there's one other big category, which is rather different. These are so-called prayers for justice curses. Typically, they're about theft, designed to remedy any sort of injustice. And you basically hand the injustice over to a god for you. So... They are quite religious in many ways. All the curses from Bath are prayers for justice, and they're all about theft, seemingly about things that have been stolen in the bathhouse. Even a plowshare seems to have been brought into the bathhouse and left in the changing room, and that got that got nicked. It'd be quite a good business model if you are the person who is doing the stealing, <laughs> and then you're also the person who is selling the curse tablets as people leave. Did you get anything nicked maybe by one of these? So you, you get them at both ends of the business yeah, model there. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes, although as it seems, I mean, there, we've excavated about just over 100 of these curses from Bath. Of those 100 nod, none of them have the same handwriting. Oh, okay. They all have a different composition. They're all different shapes and sizes. There are strong patterns in the way the curses are framed. But again, there's a lot of variation too. Interestingly, some curses are illiterate. And there's one curse which, to our eyes, just looks like a lot of sevens. That's Roger Tomlin, who's a very great scholar who sort of uh, deciphered all these things for us. As he says, you know, well, that curse was written in the confidence that the goddess would know what the chart meant. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Those considerations seem to imply there isn't one chap you know, who has his stall, and is sort of systematically making these things for any comer. So tell me about um, necromancy, which is a practice which took me by surprise to find out that that was going on in the Roman world. Was it widespread and what was the context of it? Well, it's, it's interesting that you start that way because there are people that say that there was no such thing as necromancy in the ancient world. Let me just begin by saying what I mean by necromancy. Necromancy is often used these days in a sort of vague way to mean black magic. Strictly speaking and etymologically speaking, it means divination from the dead. There's a lot of evidence for things called oracles of the dead, specifically four great oracles of the dead. 
And these were at Lake Avernus. Virgil has the famous descent of Aeneas there to the underworld. At the Acheron River, also a lake, the Acherusian Lake in uh, Thesprotia in northwest Greece. At Tynaron, the tip of the Marni Peninsula, the very lowest point of the Peloponnese. And at Heraclea Pontica on the south coast of the Black Sea. There are some nice traditions about consultations of ghosts at these places, which I described. Well, there's a series of terms, but the Nekuomanteon is the basic one. It seems to be a very, by today's standards, broad definition of of necromancy. See, as I understood it, necromancy referred to you know raising the dead on that kind of level. But this seems to be more of a um, an ancient seance in some aspects, as we would understand it. I think this is the difference between how we understand magic in our modern terms and how the ancients defined magic. Is is that fair to say? That's one end of necromancy, and the other end, of, of course, is practiced by people who look more like sorcerers and witches. I mean, one could make a case that that sort of necromancy I've been describing isn't magical at all. But again, if it's practiced by witches and sorcerers, then it is. The best examples there are really in, in Latin poetry, Lucan's description of a rip foe, Thessalian witch. And this scene takes place during the civil war between Pompey and Caesar. This is actually to do with uh, Pompey's son, Sextus Pompey. And he wants to know which way the war is going to go, how it's going to turn out. To that end, he's in Thessaly. He hears of this famous local witch called a rip And so he approaches her for a divination. And she tells him that the securest form of divination is necromancy. She's going to perform it in a very different way. This isn't just a little gentle calling for the ghost. So what she does is she finds a dead body on a battlefield, seemingly one that's had its throat cut, which is interesting, given that the whole purpose of the exercise is to talking. So she hauls it off, and then she has this wonderful magical brew into which she puts all sorts of ingredients, possible and impossible, bits of werewolf and stuff like that. And she pumps the body full of this stuff, you know, to sort of replace its blood give it life. But then at the same time, she does, she has to reinsert the soul to reanimate it. So she called prayers and curses against various underworld powers to, to call it the soul. And there's the ghost hovering, as it were, beside the body laid out, refusing to get back into the body, partly because, you know, getting back in is like dying process again, and that's not pleasant. So he doesn't want mm. to do it. So Erichthos whips the corpse with a snake, and that persuades that the soul to get back in. The soul does get back in, and then she stands the body upright, makes the body stand upright, I should say, and that's the token of reanimation, the token that the, the body has been brought back to life. And it doesn't just clamber to its feet using all limbs. It, it springs up in one, just sort of like it's hinged on its feet and just rises up in one solid motion, as it were. And I'm pretty sure that that description is um, influenced. That scene, I don't know if you know the movie Nosferatu, the, the, the old German expressionist movie. Mm. The way Nosferatu rises from his, his coffin is exactly in that form, and I'm sure that's basically derived from this, this Lucan episode. Uh, and as often in scenes of necromancy in ancient literature, the, the, the scene of the calling of the ghost or the reanimation of the, the body is splendid, and then the prophecy derived from the divination derived is, is often a bit of a damp squib. <laughs> the body, the ghost, just says, well, you know, you're all going to die, so why do you care what order it's in? So... <laughs> so, so that's it. it's interesting the connection to knowledge that all of these ghosts have it seems to be if you want to find out information that only the gods would have a way to do it would be to go through somebody who's dead and maybe that's a, a conduit of some sort well quite quite and it's not clear why that should be 
when one talks about divination or prophecy, we tend to think that, you know, about future prediction. It's not always. That's only one small part of it. Really, what divination or prophecy is, is about revealing information that's hidden. So that does make sense in many ways, as far as the, you know, the use of the dead is concerned. And very often, in terms of necromancy, you're asking about the afterlife anyway. You know, how does the world, how does the universe work? And of course, ghosts know that because they're dead, they've been there, they've seen it. But there are occasionally instances in which ghosts know the future. It's surprising, you know, I mean, because above all, you think that ghosts are things of the past, not the future. And there are sort of half-hearted attempts in ancient texts to explain why that is. I mean, again, I think in that very Lucan scene that I was just talking about, the ghost talks about seeing the parkai, women in the underworld that spin people's destinies. Therefore, he can see what future is being spun. A slightly contrived explanation. There's probably some Platonism in there as well. You know, Plato has this idea that the soul that is detached from the body is purified of all the things that lead to stupidity and confusion and the inability to perceive things properly. So a pure soul is a soul that can you know, perceive, perceive things clearly. It is a bit of a mystery, really, why ghosts should be so good at knowing things. Would they consider that to be magic? Because... I don't see why that would be magic and yet a practice such as augury yeah. or common divination that would be practiced by a, a high priest is religion. Yeah. So where's the line for, for everyday well, kind of practice? There isn't a line? It's just No, I mean, as I said, I mean, in the end, really, you know, you know something is magic because the person that's doing it is a magician or a witch. That is often the only way. But a priest can do the same thing and it's religion. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very often, a magician is the guy that's doing the same stuff that you are, but he's just your enemy or your rival. So one of the earliest mentions of Magoi, this is on the Greek side again, is in a Hippocratic text. And on the sacred disease, the author of this text is very famously sort of uh, competitive. You know, he wants to prove that his remedies are the best and his rivals are quacks. And he makes fun of the Magoi, for attempting to cure epilepsy by making prescriptions about diet. And he goes on about that for some time. And then when he gets onto his own solutions, lo and behold, there he is, he's making prescriptions again about diet. <laughs> so in the end, you know, the, the only difference between them is that the Magi are the other guys. That was Daniel Ogden, professor in classics and ancient history at the University of Exeter. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighborhood podcatching service. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow it on Twitter. I am at NightlightGuy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, we begin to take a look at a few of the enemies of the Roman Empire. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.